Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Psalm, Psalm 130. And that will be page 969 in your pew Bibles. Would you stand with us as we begin our service in prayer? Dale, may I prevail upon you to lead us? Amen. You take your brown hymnal this morning. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
and turn to number eight. <clears throat> number eight in the brown. In sing loud. <laughs> Not a lot of us sing loud. Fewer people to fight with over the favorite hymn, so go. Oh, Lydia. I guess you were singing it this morning, weren't you? <coughs> Good reason. Brown, yes, I think it's in the brown. Yes, you put it in my head this morning as well. <coughs> in the car. 382? 382. 382. <coughs> Did you just wake up singing it this morning? Good song to wake up singing. <coughs> Yes. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. That'll be page 1621, your pew Bible, and when you arrive at that, please stand with us. And this is Jesus comforting his disciples the last hours. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Father in heaven, as we continue on, we pray your presence amongst us, that you gird us and strengthen us, that you comfort us in these words. Give us an abundance of your grace. Watch over and protect us as hell. These we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. We take your Trinity this time and turn to number 299. 299 in the Trinity, in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is John 14. We have been looking at the I am statements of Jesus, which are found only in John's gospel. Each one of these claims is meant to inform us a bit more as to the character and nature of the Lord. You see, God wants us to know him. There's mystery about God, to be sure, There will always be mystery about God, but nonetheless, it's the goal of God that his creatures come to know who he is, and most importantly, not just know about him, but to know him, to know him. Take some figure of importance, let's say Governor uh, Whitmer. Perhaps you have been following her career as she came up through the ranks of the party. You know the bills maybe that she was for and what she was against as a political leader. You know about her work with the Department of Education, intercession with the school board in Detroit, trying to get better uh, schooling for our children. Maybe you even met her one day at a political rally and you shook her hand. I don't know. But if anyone asked you, you could probably tell them something about the governor. Because through your study or attention to political uh, goings-on in the state, she played a dominant role. But having said that, With all that, if someone were to ask you, do you know Governor Whitmer? You would immediately perceive that the intent of the question was not, not, do you know about her? But rather, do you know her? You see the distinction? Are you friends? Have you been to her house with her family? Does she call you on occasion? Do you do things together? Do you know her favorite dessert? Have you shared a private conversation? And while at this point you might respond by saying, well, the governor has her own circle of friends and I'm just one of her supporters... I'm not close at all. Sadly, for many professing Christians, that's all they can say about their relationship to Jesus Christ. They're one of his biggest fans. They support what he stands for. They know a lot about what he taught, what he did, 
But in the final analysis, they don't know him. And while this might be acceptable with our governor because she's only one person living in a spatially restricted sphere with limited access, limited influence, God is available to us all through the Word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But many don't want to know him intimately. Could I put it that way? They want to know him from a distance. There is, of course, the whole idea that because God is so majestic, there is a distance that goes with him. I mean, even if you were in the king's court, you would just be a servant and you wouldn't go bopping up to the throne and present yourself to the king in any uh, safe way. There would be a protocol that you had to follow in order to get an audience. But sometimes we need to understand that being a fan of Jesus, being a fan of God, doesn't really mean that you know him. That there's an intimacy there. While this might be acceptable with our governor because she is only one woman living in a spatially restricted sphere with limited access, limited influence, God is available to us all through his word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But many don't want to know him intimately. They want to know him at a distance. And only when they are hurting. You see, for them, God is like the band-aid they pull from the medicine cabinet when they've cut themselves on some sin, which has messed up their life and is about to swallow them completely. But Jesus Christ wants you to know him as his disciple and to love him as your Lord and to obey him as he taught those things which are good for your family and good for your own soul. And not to know him is your fault. It's your decision. And many decide to keep him on the peripheral of their lives. And that is why some of your lives may be in shambles. There are people who are users of God, but they don't love him. They don't love him as a friend, they don't love him as a brother, and they don't love him as a savior. They don't know him as a savior. So the claim Jesus makes in these I am statements in John that we are studying are revelations about himself which are the basics of controversy and rejection by the people of the world 
but they are very inner things Jesus wants his disciples to know of him and to enter into with him. This is all the more the case in these final two statements, both of which are found in Jesus' teaching with his 12 disciples in the upper room the very night of his betrayal, arrest, and trial, all of that just being an hour or so away. And it is as though the world, including Judas, who had left the group to betray Jesus, was locked out of this intimate discussion that our Lord is having with his disciples. You see, only the true disciples heard these teachings. The inner circle of Jesus' earthly spiritual family were present for these words and no one else. These people are taken into Jesus' confidence. Judas is gone. The religious leaders are gone. The crowd is gone. The eleven remain. They are the true friends of Jesus. And these are dangerous times for them as well. But they're there because, guess what? Their Lord is there. And where he is, is where they want to be. True Later in fear, all of them scattered for their lives because they thought the Roman soldiers were just minutes away from coming to arrest them. You remember that's why Judas went out. And he did show up at the garden with what? Soldiers. So Judas was out doing his thing and the disciples were right to be fearful. And so they fled, like I said initially. Then they got a hold of their feelings and their emotions and returned, thus showing themselves to be true disciples, not Judas. That is, they would rather be with the Lord they know and love and risk loss of life than be with the people of the world who keep their distance from Jesus as they travel the broad road that leads to destruction. So this brings us then to this powerful I am declaration in John 14, verse 6. It reads, I, I am the way, the Greek has two eyes in it. And they do that for emphasis. I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the context, as I already mentioned, this teaching was taught by Christ in the upper room, which his disciples had secured for Jesus and themselves to celebrate the Passover together one more time. John 13, verse 1. Judas was not present. He had left to complete his intent of betrayal. John 13, verse 30. 
Jesus then begins to address, in a sobering way, the reality of his upcoming arrest and trial and execution. Yes. And he does this at first by discussing that he's going away. 13 and verse 33. And what makes it worse is they can't come with him. Verse 36. Peter thinks that he has the wherewithal to follow Jesus anywhere, even to the point of laying down his life for the Lord. He says that, verse 37 of John 13. But Jesus informs him that not only will he not lay down his life for the Lord, but Peter will, in fact, disown Jesus three times before that night is over, verse 39. Wow, this is a lot of information to swallow in a short period of time. And while it's true that Jesus had begun to prepare his disciples early on about his executions, clear from the Bible that they could not accept it. And Peter even rebuked the Lord for daring to, daring to suggest a thing. Remember that, Matthew 16, verse 22. Disciples sometimes speak when they should be quiet and listen. Peter was a talker, not a listener. And it got him into trouble many times. Maybe you're the same way, I don't know. If Christ is Lord of his people, lords teach and rule and govern. That's what they do. Disciples Learn, obey, and submit. Anything more on our part shows a rebellious spirit or at least one of unfounded and ignorant pride. We do think we know best how to rule our lives. We think we know the solutions to life's problems, but sin has clouded our judgment. And if we know about ourselves, that about ourselves, then we will be willing to heed the God over us who knows all things. And if you don't trust Christ like that, then it's doubtful that you really believe in him as you claim. We have to trust that he knows us best. And when he accuses us of certain things, certain failures, we need to take those things to heart. Unfortunately, Christians do not always do their best thinking when they're upset. And I would say no one does. In our text, the disciples are upset. John says they're troubled, verse 1. He appoints, he, he, he counteracts that with Jesus' words. Stop letting your hearts be troubled, says Jesus. Trust in God. Trust also in me. But he is saying to us that these men are upset. And they have good reason to be upset. Observe. Jesus has just revealed that one of their very own inner circle of disciples is a traitor. But the disciples don't have a clue as to who it is. So... You know, the other gospel accounts show them starting to 
question each other and also questioning the Lord. Lord, is it me? And another guy will say, well, how about me, Lord? Is it me? They don't have a clue that it's Judas. And I give them credit, at least, that they didn't excuse themselves, nor did they start pointing fingers to one another. They just started this tremendous inquiry. Lord, tell me, <laughs> is it me? If it is, I can. we can get right. I can seek your forgiveness. So that's the first thing that has them upset. Secondly, Jesus himself is troubled in spirit. Chapter 13, verse 21. And as is common among friends, when one party is upset, that upsets the other parties because we don't like to see each other in distress. So he is visibly in distress. The disciples see that. And they become empathetic with him. Lord, what's the matter? What's going on? Why are you so quiet? What? You look sullen. You look concerned. You look worried. Well, thirdly, Jesus has announced that he's going away. And the ones who love him most, you cannot come along. think of this these men had been with Jesus since day one of his public ministry like (laughs) like a shadow on the wall where Jesus went they went what he did they did but now they are told by the Lord himself he's going to go away and they cannot accompany him. Would that make you upset? They've been with him every day. Peter told him on one occasion, Lord, we have left all to follow you. What? Our families, our fishing trade... So finally, Peter, the strong one, again, in the group, the rock, the one on whom the other disciples relied to be their leader and spokesperson, this same Peter is foretold by Jesus, oh no, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. What? This can't be happening. head of our group, the organizer of our 
Discipleship is going to deny the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. So you can see there is enough here in these four things to upset anybody and to shake them down into the very core of their being. No wonder Jesus says to them, Stop letting your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust me. From what follows in terms of Jesus talking about going away to the Father's house to prepare a place for the disciples with the promise that he will come back to receive them to himself, it's pretty clear that the disciples have another concern on their minds. They are thinking hard on Jesus' words about him going away and they not being able to accompany him and they are thinking, what's going to happen to us? What good are disciples if there's no teacher to follow? He's going away. We're being left here. He's abandoning us. For three years, they had left family and homes and occupation to learn of Jesus and to be with him night and day. And now it has all come down to this. He's leaving us, and we are to do what with our lives? I believe that some of this uncertainty we see even after the resurrection of the Lord, and Peter says to the group of disciples, I'm going fishing. John 21, verse 3. And six of the other disciples decided, we're coming too. What's going on? Well, there was in Peter some uncertainty as to his role now that he had denied the Lord, just as Jesus said he would. Was there something the Lord wanted him to do? He didn't know what to do. One thing he knew, I know how to fish. I know how to pick up where I left off. I know how to support my family. And it was on that occasion that Jesus took Peter aside and told him three times that if Peter really loved him, as he had just confessed, he would forget the fish and feed God's people, the sheep. And making a living as a fisherman was an honorable trait, but teaching God's people was more necessary, and not all can do that. Peter, you're getting a new direction here. Forget the fish. And take care of the sheep. 
Now, that doesn't mean the sheep, the woolly creatures out on the field somewhere. My personal disciples take care of that. So in coming to our text this morning, Jesus assures his disciples that although they cannot come with Jesus now to where he is going, the Father's house, they will follow later, chapter 13, verse 36. And what is more, they should not look upon his departure as the Lord deserting them. No, he's going away to do a work to prepare a place for them in glory, yes, in the Father's house, that they may be where he is, his words, not mine, verse 3. And with his going, he promises to return to them, to receive them personally unto himself. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. May I say that that was precisely their fear. Hey, he's he's deserting us. What's going to happen to us? They thought Jesus was abandoning them at a time in their life when they needed him all the more. Now here's my question. How do you calm people's hearts when they are agitated in spirit and aren't exactly thinking straight? When people's emotions are running away with their behavior and their brain is on idle, how do you help them? Well, Jesus did two things. Firstly, he told them to stop emoting and start trusting. Verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. This tells me that we let ourselves become upset at times. We do not check our unbridled emotions. We become upset and we allow things that upset us to continue on. They fester, we allow it. We add fuel to the fire by allowing our minds to run down rabbit trails which have no bearing whatsoever on the circumstances at hand. But they, it's, that's where we go. How could Jesus leave us in this crucial hour? We have devoted our lives to him and now he's deserting us when we need him? Is that love? Is that compassion that he would go away and not take us with him? How can he do that to us? Now the disciples are thinking bad thoughts, which should have never been entertained. And I'm not saying that they thought these thoughts, because I don't know, but it is at least plausible because we do the same thing. We allow our emotions to distort our reasoning ability. We allow our feelings to dictate our actions. And feelings are never a safe guide for determining conduct. They're too fickle, too tied into the circumstances. Doing right, we feel good. Doing evil, when we feel bad. 
Yet the test of a true disciple is to trust God and to think well of God when we go through bad times. That was Job. Remember in Job's agony with the boils and all of that, he couldn't get any rest whatsoever. His wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. And his response was, you're a foolish woman. We receive good from God and not bad. You see, anyone can believe in God when the world is rosy and all is well. We think God is blessing us, and so we're happy to believe him. But let pain, let suffering come into our lives, or if not sorrow, just maybe difficulty, a hard road to travel, to be faithful to God, and suddenly we're not so sure that we believe that God has our good interests at heart. Hey, I've been following you, praying, faithful in my service to you. Yet I'm going through all this trial. When people go this route, there's a lot of self-pity involved. They are feeling sorry for themselves. How do we handle that? Well, you do as Jesus did in our text. You tell them outright, stop it right now. You are just emoting, and that's getting you into trouble. In the case of the disciples, Jesus proceeded to explain to them that he was not deserting them at all, but going away for the express purpose of sending another counselor, verse 16, to be with them forever. Oh, didn't know about that. He was going away to prepare a place for them to be with him and the Father. Oh, they didn't know about that. So he does have their best interest at heart. He is concerned about them. He does care for them. So stop the pity party right now and trust me. And brethren, we do people no favor by allowing them to continue in their wrong thinking, which of course becomes the basis for wrong behavior. You need to be bold enough to tell people, stop it. And stop it right now. This is no time for irrational, sentimental babbling. Rather, it's a time to put into practice all you know about God and exercise that faith that you say you have in Him. think disciples need to hear this. Disciples need to be challenged to believe and to trust. 
The second thing Jesus did to calm his disciples was to assure them, verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Have you ever been lost? I'm sure you have. I have. Maybe you were out in the woods on a hike and you got too deep into the forest and you couldn't figure out the way to get back. Or maybe you were on a lonely road at night where you could see nothing too well and you made a few wrong turns and the road narrowed down to a cow path in a farmer's field. Very disconcerting to be lost. When Don and I were coming back from Pennsylvania one year, this actually happened to us. They were working on 20, what is it, 23? Shut the road down, and they were shooting people off the highway. There was an accident or something going on, the big truck. We're out in the middle of nowhere, and they shoot us off to these side roads. I didn't have a GP at that time. So she got out the map that we carried. We started looking. How are we going to get back to up here? She says, well, there's a road right up here to the left. It looks like it goes over to Fenton. I don't know. Does it go up to Fenton? No, she says it doesn't seem to do that. But it stops at a certain place, and then maybe we can connect to another road that would take us. We kept driving. We ended up in a farmer's field. I'm telling you, that's very disconcerting. It was a wheat field. We couldn't go any further. We had to turn around, backtrack, try a different route. We did finally make it to Fenton. And when we got that far, we said, ah, we know where we are now. We can make it back to home. You need to be told, you need to be bold enough to tell people, stop the irrational, sentimental babbling. You know God. Exercise your faith. Love him as you should. Disciples need to hear this. The second thing Jesus did to calm his disciples was to assure them, verse 4, You know the way to the place where I'm going. What? We know the way? Yeah. Very disconcerting if you don't know the way. If you don't know the destination, you don't know the path. You hope you know enough to make right turns and correct choices. So part of the disciples' dilemma was their uncertainty that if Jesus was leaving them and they were to follow later, he says that, chapter 13, verse 36, would they know the way to rejoin him? To put it in today's vernacular, 
Were they really saved? Would they make it to glory? Would they find God the Father in peace? And it is here that Jesus assures them, you know the way to the place where I am going. Translation, you won't get lost on this journey because you know the route. Have you ever said to somebody, you can do this. You can do this. You know this inside and out. You've done it a hundred times before. There's no reason to be afraid. And regardless of the subject that you're discussing, you know enough about that person to know that their fears are unfounded. They have what they need to know to accomplish the task. And sometimes this is all people need to help them over a hump. They just need someone to remind them of what they know and what they believe. Hey, you've done this before. And this is even more important when we traverse the unknown. When my mother was dying, I said to her, Mom, it's okay. You've trusted the Lord all your life. You need to trust Him now. And He's going to get you through this. Brethren, do you know that friends are not, family are not, dying is done alone. Alone. You're all alone unless, unless you have the Lord as Savior. If I'm going to my friend's house, to the one who loved me and died for me, should I be afraid? Or should I be eager to get there? Now when Thomas heard Jesus' assurance that the disciples knew the way to the place where he was going, he was skeptical. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. (laughs) So how can we know the way? Good for Thomas. I mean, he's thinking. Thomas' question is based on something related to Jesus' words, but not identical. 
Jesus asserted that the disciples knew the way, and Thomas is saying, in effect, well, you know, Lord, that would be true if we just knew where you were going. But since we do not know your destination, it's impossible for us to figure out the way to get there. That's all good logic, folks. And I see the self-confidence behind his statement. We're the same way. We, we think if we are just given the necessary facts in a problem, we can figure out the solution. But in the spiritual realm, that's not faith at all. Jesus had just told them, trust in God. Trust also in me. Thomas wasn't trusting. He was trying to reason his way out of his fears. And he hasn't been a very good listener because Jesus had told all the disciples where he was going. Verse 2, my father's house. And what is more... No amount of self-effort will get Thomas or any of the other disciples there. They need a Savior for that. And it is here that Jesus states his claim. Thomas, you are uncertain as to the way. You say you don't know where... I am going, and how to join me where I am going. Thomas, I, I, he says I twice, the Greek shows. They don't put it in the English. I, I am the way and the truth and the light. And no one comes to the Father except through me. While this was said to the inner disciples, it is important to see that there is a universal reality to what Jesus says here. No one comes to the Father except through me. Indeed, if anyone expects to see God the Father in peace, they must come through Jesus Christ. And Jesus does not share this position with anyone or anything else. This is an exclusive claim, but observe some of the depth of what he is telling these men and all of us. While the Lord stresses that he is the way to God, his emphasis is that he is more than a pathway, even more than the only route, though this is also true. He is saying more than that. He is saying more than that he is some intermediary who gets people from point A to point B. He is not a temporary figure in people's spiritual lives, as though to say that once people have traversed via 
from the material world to the spiritual, he becomes unnecessary and obsolete. You know, like a bridge over troubled water. I got you over the troubled water, so now my job's done. Bye. We don't need to see each other anymore. Rather, is our Lord saying that he is so uniquely the way that believers find their destination immediately when they find him. They arrive at God the moment they step on the way of God. They do not find Jesus and then at a later time find God the Father and everlasting life. The only thing they wait for is the Father's house but not God the Father's presence or power. This is what all this discussion is about in the ensuing verses where Jesus explains to Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 9, again verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So for our hearts this morning, it's important to see that Jesus is the way the truth, and the life in totality. To find Christ is to find God. To have Christ as Savior is to arrive at the destination which all men say they see. Heaven is where Christ is, and without Him there is no heaven. There is no mansion. There is no eternal dwelling place. We find the Father as soon as Jesus finds us. Verse 7. If you really knew me, says Jesus, you would know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and you've seen him. See how important all this ties together? How deplorable and blinding it is to men for the other religions of the world to talk as though they know the way to God when Jesus makes this exclusive claim. They teach about God as though they knew him. Yet all the while rejecting Jesus Christ as his son. Their teaching is on a God who does not exist and on a salvation that saves no one. It's a figment of their imagination to believe that they know the way to God while denying Jesus' deity. John the Apostle put it this way in 1 John 2, 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoa. Whoever acknowledges Son has the Father also. Or again, 2 John chapter 1, verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
You can't keep hopping from church to church, from teacher to teacher, from one theology to another theology. This is what our Lord means in declaring himself to be the truth. He's not one truth among many, but the only truth there is. Truth is what he says it is, because as God, he is truth's author. Any search of man for the truth, which does not begin and end with Jesus Christ, is destined to failure and frustration. And this goes for any truth that you're seeking. Whether one is seeking, let's say, for the truth on child-rearing, or husband-wife relationships, or the truth on employer-employee responsibilities. Even in the so-called sciences, think of this, such as geology, biology, zoology, or any other kind of ology, the truth in all these areas and more begins with God. So in whatever God speaks, his word is the truth, and it's to be accepted by us as believers and acted upon. You cannot have one foot in the philosophies of this age and the other in the Bible and say that you believe in Christ. As Jesus put it to his disciples, so I put it to you. Trust in God, trust also in Jesus Christ. They are one and the same. If you love the Lord, then his word, on whatever topic, will take precedence over anything you may read or studied on the same subject from men in their education. Jolene graduated from the University of Michigan. Before her was Jess. Before Jess was Jared. If your children go to a secular university, it's incumbent upon them as Christian young people not to buy into everything the professors teach. And God gives discernment to his people to know the difference between truth and error when they see it. Thankfully, my children knew God through Jesus Christ, else they could not have known what to retain and what to discard in such a godless universe. Doctors of philosophy or doctors of the sciences do not impress God, and they should not impress us either. Why? Here's why. I'm giving you Bible. God says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 20 and following. To miss God in one's wisdom is to be the biggest fool there is. To know how to build bridges across ravines and yet none know how to avoid the pit of hell is fatal. To raise your children to be worldly wise and self-assertive through lack of discipline may seem the loving course to go, but God says, Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline. In all knowledge, we are to begin with God's word first and use it as the grid, or can I say, the cheesecloth through which we pour all other so-called knowledge. And whatever the grid catches, we're to discard it as false and determined to order our lives without that information. Whatever man has discovered that does not conflict with the word of God, we count that as God's grace to his creatures, and we may employ such knowledge for God's glory and our good. And we're never to think that God does not know the best or the most. about whatever topic you're studying. You will find that Jesus Christ is the living truth of God. And if you follow him, you will find life indeed. Here's my question. Have you found God in your search for spirituality? that void in your life, that gnawing emptiness that was designed by God for himself. Without God, you will never have true happiness. You need to fill that void with God, with the faith in the end. Without Jesus, you'll never find God. Why? Because Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the pathway. So when you think about that, the Bible is putting an end to all the other religions in the world except Christianity. I think that's mind-boggling. God is saying, it's Christ my son or nothing. He's the way, he's the truth, and if you follow him, you end up with a life. If you don't, you won't. You can go study the guru from India. You can go study Buddha from China. You can go study the Mormon church, Moroni. You can go wherever you want. But if you don't go through Jesus, you won't find God, and consequently, you won't obtain salvation. This is an exclusive claim that Jesus makes. 
and rightly so. He's the only Son of God. Our Father, help us to really understand this truth. We're not picking on the other religions of the world. They're blinded by the God of this age, who is Satan. Boy, if he can get them to worship a, a stone, or a fountain, or a tree, or a piece of gold, or whatever, he's going to do it. And he's going to take their eyes off of Jesus, put their eye on something that they consider to be tangible, feelable, seeable, touchable. but unattainable with regard to salvation. Oh, I hate the devil. He's such a blinder and a deceiver of people. And he hates the word of God. You see that from Genesis on through the entire Bible where he resists and fights the truth. Lord, you break through today Help people to see. It's Christ in salvation or no Christ and no salvation. Break our stubborn hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. From the hymnal, number Find number 92, we used to.
historically, there's only one Savior. The world in its paganism has opted for idols. The Jews, though they think they have salvation in the reading of the scriptures and the teachings of the rabbis, have missed that rabbi who is superior to them all, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people in our world, in our country, in particular, who burden our hearts because of their family members. And uh, sad to say, they don't have time for God. They just have time for making money. That's all they live for. Oh, yeah, they take care of their families and support them. Want to take them on vacation and stuff, buy them toys and later life homes and all of those kind of things. But that's building a kingdom out of trinkets that are available here on earth. If they miss Christ, they miss the glory of heaven and the salvation that goes with it, the forgiveness of sin. duty of knowing Christ as Savior. Paul says in the scriptures that we can't even imagine, we cannot even imagine what God has prepared for those who love Him. In our wildest dreams, we can't fathom it. So I pray that we would take that into consideration would realize that God is greater than our dreams, greater than our imagination, and we are going to be gloriously surprised by what he has prepared. The greatest thing, sins forgiven, a right relationship with the Creator, no more fighting him but at peace with him. And as he rules the world, we will rule with him. We bless the Lord for the truth of the gospel, for the glory of it, for the goodness of it, for the joy of it. Ooh, we can hardly wait to be with you. I pray, Lord, that that would be the case. Bless our church, bless our little family here. Bless our children that are yet to come to know Jesus. We praise you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.